Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. Protonic reversal. Protonic reversal with your host, Kevin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rocking about music, rock and roll, and cover power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool. I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. That's like a science thing, right? That's right, that's right. Indeed, indeed, it is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. It is time for the one, the only protonic reversal. Hello, hello. Welcome, everybody, to the show once again. We have a special treat for you today. We're, we're kind of cranking out the Australian guests, I guess, recently. But, uh, yeah, we have none other than the legend himself, Mr. Ross Knight of the Cosmic Psychos. Very stoked to have Ross on. Fantastic fella. Anyway, we're going to play a tune, then we'll uh, get right down to it. All right, so this is a nice day to go to the pub.
definitely not a nice day to go to the pub right now, unfortunately. But uh, we do have on the line now Mr. Ross Knight. Ross, how are you doing? Yeah, pretty good, mate. Yourself? Hey, good. Yeah, coming in loud and clear considering the distance uh, the distance reached. <laughs> Talk about socially distant. Yeah, well, we yeah, and the old uh, internet machine doesn't work very good here at the farm. How was quarantine life down at the farm? Well, I just realised I've been living in quarantine and isolation most of my life because it hasn't made any difference at all to me at all. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty much just an average amount of time spent non-quarantining, huh? Yeah, well, look, I just, I'm just i still driving the bulldozer digging holes. I'm still doing stuff on the farm. I'm still going up the shed and having a beer by myself with my dog, so nothing changes. <laughs> Even when folks are forced to talk about it, for, for a lot of folks that tend to be a more creative types, it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, what was I really doing that this is, that this is stopping right now? And of course, the, the big thing is it's stopping touring. And it's, if, you're, if you're someone that plays shows, you know, that's, that's not happening at all right now. And, that, and that's a bit of a drag, to put it simply, amongst, you know, other things like, you know, the death and people being loaded up into trucks and bodies and stuff, things along those lines, cheery topics like that. Oh, yeah. No, there's uh, yeah, a lot worse things happening in the world than not playing a gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you stop it. To, to put it bluntly, yes. But, yeah, I was, just, I was just playing while we were getting ready to go there. I was just playing a nice day to go to the pub. And <laughs> I hadn't seen the, the live footage. Uh, I believe it's actually up on your Facebook page. I don't know the, the show that, that it's at, but it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty bonkers. It's uh, folks going crazy. It's a good old time. Guitar gets unplugged. There's somebody standing on top of like a shed, something along those lines. It 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 it, it really kind of seemed to sum up the whole Cosmic Psychos experience in a very cool way. And it also seemed very far away just because of the very unfun times that are going on uh, uh, right now. Yeah, that's for sure. You've been doing Cosmic Psychos for a long time. First time I saw you fellows was with Mud Honey in uh, God, I guess it must have been it was like late nineties in san francisco and i i didn't know you from moses you know I, I thought it was a great show and i was like oh these 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 guys are they're rock and roll they they're very it's a rock and roll band and i hadn't realized at the time just how long you had been going because it hadn't been something that i was familiar with coming from basically we'll just go and say a rural part of california it's more like uh you know has more in common with with maybe a, a farm like yourself than it would for a major metropolitan area so i just wasn't su- super clued in on it but it seems like mud honey is definitely a band that cosmic psychos had a lot of affinity with and uh and, and did a lot of stuff with it would you i mean the whole grunge thing, you know, as ridiculous as a term as it is, it seemed like Cosmic Psycho slotted right in. Did you feel that that was the case, even though you predated that? Yeah, look, well, I guess so. We just, look, we, Mud Honey, we just fitted in like we were natural beer drinking brothers, and that is just it. Wouldn't matter if we had been a classical music band. We just loved drinking a lot of beer with them and liked fucking around a lot. And it just, yeah, as I said, it, it was just a natural a natural attraction to each other. I think it was more the personalities or just the fun times more so than the music even. I think the music was secondary. The parties were up front. Yeah, and it, it seems like uh, there, was, there was always a, a focus on fun with the psycho stuff. Uh, it's a sort of like through line through everything. And it's not doesn't seem like an affectation in any way, shape, or form. Did the music sort of start off as a, a an outgrowth of just the having a good time and letting off steam? Well... I, I can't speak for the other guys in the band now, but for myself, the music started up just because I realised that if you were, when punk rock came along and listening to the Ramones, anyone could be in a band and that's that's where it started from and I guess 
it was just an outlet for me to just write songs about being pissed off living at a farm. And that's as simple <laughs> as that, really. And right. the style of music wasn't accidental because the style of music at the time I was writing in the 70s, I knew I'd already reached my musical limit and I haven't exceeded or got any better since the first day I picked up a bass guitar, which is, I kind of don't mind, actually. <laughs> well, there's, there's certainly precedent for it. I mean, think about your, your Ramones, think about your uh, ACDC, another Australian band. It's like, you know, if it's good, it's good. Then there's all the notes in the oh, world yeah. aren't going to change it. Exactly, exactly. And if, look, if you find a little formula in your own head, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, if it appeals to anyone else, that's great. But if I can come up with the same old three-chord riff written backwards and it appeals to me and makes me have a laugh well I'm quite happy right so it feels like uh, and you know started off on the farm I, I believe was it was it rancid spam is what it was called at first before spring planes yeah the highest yeah the high school band was called rancid spam and we started that in oh, form five or year 11 so we would have been about 16 and we used to just practice in an old hay shed and then eventually got our breakthrough gig by playing at the uh, high school social or the high school dance. Which is so funny to think about because that's such a foreign experience now uh, compared to how schools are. But, you know, for, for bands of the time, I mean, for Christ's sake, the Stooges, you know, played the school dances and things along those yeah. lines, which must have been quite, quite the scene. Yeah, well, look, in those days, it wasn't unusual. I was just a little bit too young, but I've got a lot of mates that would go and see ACDC play just in a little rural hall or a school auditorium, and they'd be, you know, just to, to bands like that, you can't imagine them playing just in little outside of Melbourne, you know, 20, 30 miles playing in a little country hall. But that stuff happened yeah. all the time. People almost didn't know to be self-sorting, right? Even the idea of, like, rock music necessarily, like it wasn't as much of an institution as it was now, so people didn't have necessarily institutionalized mindsets about it, at least... Uh, Come from my perspective of missing that entirely, that's what I would say. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, yeah. Look, I would. I, I, look, it's a combination of that and, and accidental. I think back in those days it was so instant. It was just accidental. If you if you fell upon a formula and stuck to it, it was it was it planned? Probably not. And it was just, you know, it's like do you plan to fall over a stick? No, you don't. But sometimes you do. Right. So then... Uh, Whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, you don't plan to fall off a stick usually. <laughs> you, you had Rancid Spam, which begat Spring Plains, which is sort of uh, the actual progenitor behind, uh, well, it was called the Dirty Cosmic Psychos at first, right? Nah, the Dirty Cosmic Psychos name got rejected. So uh, there was Bill, the Bill, Bill and uh, Peter and myself, when we were going through names, I liked the Dirty Cosmic Psychos name, but they just said, no, nah, we'll just call it the Cosmic Psychos. So we... We dropped the dirty part. When it, when it comes time to, like, uh, defining your sound, it wasn't like you were necessarily going for, like, uh, oh, well, you know, we'll have a, have a singer now. And, it's, and it seems like, oh, we'll just take turns, you know, doing doing our vocals and making that part of the music, which is something that, I mean, did you really, did you, did you give much thought into those early, those early songs you were putting up together? Like, that first EP and things along those lines. Nah, well, it's, it's just... Spring Plains had a singer and then he left. We asked him to leave. He was a good mate of mine. He was, he was the original singer in Rance and Spam. But we just sort of, and then we had a gig coming up. So we had basically five days to either find a vocalist or five days to write 
the lyrics to five songs each and sing them ourselves. So we went, oh, well, we'll just write the lyrics and sing them ourselves. So we got up on stage and with our lyric sheets and uh, stared down at the floor trying to read what we'd written to sing. <laughs> We've really no idea where we're going. <laughs> and how was that? Was that a was it was harrowing? Like what was what was the whole what was the experience? Oh, look, we're honestly all shitting ourselves because it's very easy to stand behind a guitar and stare at your shoes, but when you've actually got to lift your head up and pretend to be a singer, and then remember the words you'd written the day before, and then. For me, not being the greatest bass player in the world, if my head's looking at the microphone, I'm not looking at where my one finger is on my fretboard. So it <laughs> right, was quite yeah. scary. As you become used to it, something that becomes like far less frightening the more you do it. Did it seem ill-fitting at the time? Nah, not really. And look, it's amazing what, you know, 10 or 12 beers before you go on and then when you finish the show, you have another 30 beers and you start thinking, geez, I must have done all right there. And then till you wake up in the morning. I mean, it seems like the, the, the drinking part of it appeared very early on and has been some, some of the ubiquitous thing with the psychos, but not really like as like a modus operandi, just as like part of, you know, part of the wallpaper, so to speak. Basically, beer is, the, uh, beer is always the uh, foremost instrument in the psychos, I think. Talk to me about taking post-Spring Plains, you, you have the singer, you're Cosmic Psychos now, recording that first EP. Talk to me about the time period around that time, just in Australia. Like, what was Australia like? Uh, music and music just, as, just as a Australia dude. Was, oh, right. Well, Australia was, well, see, at that point in time, I was playing sport, uh, drinking beer, and playing in a, in a shitty band. So it was almost like everyone was in a band then as well. Everyone played a bit of sport. Everyone played in a band and everyone drank beer. Um, and it was just, you know, a bit, bit of the Wild West around those times. Um, and basically anything to ignore the new romantic scene that was happening. <laughs> so it, it seemed like the psychos are coming from a place of like the filthier side of rock and roll. Like, no, not putting on airs. Yeah, and definitely not on the cool scene. There was a huge cool scene, and there was the sort of and I'm not I'm not saying this because I don't like them, but there was the, there was the birthday party boys next door kind of scene. There was this very cool underground rock and roll sleazy scene where everyone looked cool, had to act cool, spent a lot of time on their hair. If they didn't spend time on their hair, they spent it on their drug addiction. And then there was the rat bag scene, and I felt we were very much more about the rat bag scene and just didn't give a a rat's toss bag about what we did, what we looked like, and what we sounded like. Yeah, I mean, it seemed, you know, for lack of a better term, like very, uh, like a very proletariat thing. Like sort of like you weren't bringing your ego into it. It was you're you're bringing workman's rock and roll almost, but done done your way. And I mean, did you find there were other bands you had common cause with around around that time? Because you have to understand for folk, the younger listeners out there that it wasn't like how it is now, where there are a million different bands and everyone has like a, a niche of an own of a niche for themselves. It's uh, you know there was a lot of cross pollination, but. Oh. You, if you if you seems like if you found kindred spirits, it was a little more rare. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and look at that first car, the first incarnation incarnation sounds sounds like a flower, doesn't it? <laughs> the first um, version of the psychos. It was a funny mix because there was me, me the 
footballer and the cricketer and the beer drinker versus um, Peter Jones on guitar, who was more, he was quite serious about what he did. And he used to actually practice a lot and work on his sound and stuff like that. And then, you know, Bill was another personality completely. So it was a, a, a bit of a, a strange mix for a three-piece band. And then when we'd play and, and all go off to our circle of friends, you couldn't meet three different different circles of friends in your life. That, that <laughs> sort of helps form that really sort of diverse crowd that used to come and see us. So did you find that, like, was it more of a party vibe then, you'd, you'd say, like, uh, especially early on? Yeah, well, my crowd was very much a party vibe. We were very much drink as much beer as you can, pull your pants down around your ankles and run around the dance floor, which used to just completely disgust Peter's circle of friends. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't having any of it. <laughs> oh shit, no, no. Pete, Pete was a bit more of the same. He was, you know, he was a smart bloke, Pete. So he wasn't going to. Apart from being on stage, I don't think he really enjoyed associating with me too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, because people always have this idea of a band as like, oh, they're you know they're the best of friends and they do everything to get like the monkeys or something along those lines, right? And uh, it, that's not always the case, but usually it's it, it's almost more like like war buddies. <laughs> <laughs> to a certain degree, no, 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 no. and that's you, you're spot on. But it, it just as it morphs, we can go on about that whenever you want. But you know, you, I look at the band now, and we are best of friends, right? You know, and it's the the, the three that are in the band now couldn't be any closer. And probably the main the main reason we like getting together and touring is because we don't rehearse and because we don't practice. We just can't wait to see each other and go out and have a beer and have a bit of fun. Yeah, and, you know, nothing kind of bonds you more together than kind of like, you know, be, being up and out in the world. Did, did you find that taking the psychos out, like, you know, into the world at large, did that come naturally? Or was that something that you had to kind of ease into or be... Uh... Well, it, for the first tour, like, Peter and Peter and Bill couldn't wait to go overseas. Yeah, they just wanted to tour. Um, I had to be taken kicking and screaming. Um, I didn't even go on the first European tour. I... I pulled out with two weeks to go. I said, no, I'm just not going. And I, I just went, uh, I don't know why. I, I was When I think back now, maybe I just sort of thought, no, I don't believe I'd never been overseas before and maybe I just didn't want to go. I, I just don't know. I don't know. But anyway, I went the next year and had an absolute ball. Yeah, that was the uh, the, the fellow from Venom P. Stinger filled in for you, right? It was, it was <laughs> yeah. yeah, big, big out. Was, he was great. And he did such a good job like when, when they ran into Al to get Al to do it, I remember going to, they were practicing with Al. So I actually went down to a rehearsal and just showed Al everything I knew, which took about 38 seconds. And uh, <laughs> he just ran with that and turned it into a three-year. You did get, head over to Europe and you did kind of tour around. And, and did you find that it was, uh, I mean, did you enjoy touring initially once you actually started like getting into it? Like finding, you know, like-minded folks from, from all over and... Uh, did you think it was oh, annoying? Yeah. <laughs> I was probably very annoying to Peter and I was very annoying to Bill, but I actually found meeting people the most fun part of it and that's that's part of what I hang on to now. Like 35 years ago when we first went to Europe and then I, I look back now and I'm still mates with people I met 35 years ago. I've still got friends, they've got kids and, and that was gold, just meeting people. And generally meeting really, really good people. You know, and some of those folks, you end up just maintaining these friendships for, for your entire life. And it's a different kind of friendship than you would have, yeah. you know, necessarily being like, you know, the fellow down the road, right? <laughs> oh, bloody hell. <laughs> bloody hell. 
talk to me about Robbie joining the band. Now, there's a, there's a story I, I think is he had, like rewired his guitar or something right before uh, join, joining up with the Psychos and like end up blowing an amp yeah. or something along those lines. Was that was that in my own base here? Yeah, you're you're, right, you're spot on. He actually blew up three amplifiers. So what we've done, Peter <laughs> Peter Jones wanted to sort of he wanted to live in Queensland or up in Sydney, and he didn't. I don't know, Peter. Uh, Peter was probably just sick of me. I got no. I, I like Peter a lot. He's, I, I still consider him a mate. Whether he considers me a mate, I don't know. But a lot of respect for Pete. But Pete just didn't. I don't know. That just something happened. There was a fallout between the three of us, or whatever. But Pete wanted to be in the band. Didn't want to be in the band. And Robbie had been suggested by someone to. to he should have a go at playing in the band. So we organised a rehearsal, and Robbie hit one note on his guitar and the amp blew up and they <laughs> he wheeled that out. He wheeled two more amps in. We probably didn't get play any more than about, look, honestly, half a dozen chords for the whole half an hour we were in there and they wouldn't lend him any more amplifiers. And that's when he told us that he'd rewired his guitar the night before and maybe he got it wrong. Yeah, and... Uh... <laughs> Well, that's quite an audition then, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, at that point. Uh, well, Robbie was such a shy, he was such a shy kind of fellow. And he comes back in with his head down and his eyes half closed and he was busy trying to apologise. And I just said, mate, you're in. That's as simple as that. So, Because you had, you had seen him play previously. You were familiar? Yeah, Robbie and his brother Rex used to play in a band that I used to go and see a little bit, and they'd do. Oh, look, put it this way: Rex was an, his older brother was a very talented guitar player, and I think the story goes that Rex bought Robbie a Jimi Hendrix record for Christmas mm. one year. Sure. And Robbie picked up a guitar and learned how to play guitar from that Hendrix record with no lessons; just picked it up and went bang. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Well. It was pretty. Pretty amazing. He he could play deliver the, the theme from Deliverance with his teeth. <laughs> so he was awesome. Oh, the uh, um, the uh, ding 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 ding. That one. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he could play that. Um, he was also very good when something went wrong on stage and we needed to rebuild the drum kit or do something else. He used to quite often play Zorba the Greek with his teeth live. So that was a, that was your like it's that old repertoire of teeth songs, huh? Would he- <laughs> just to be able to work through. Well, his teeth, unfortunately, got worn down that much from playing with his teeth that he, he only brought his teeth out at special occasions because he was running out of teeth. <laughs> I mean, you've got to have priorities. I mean, <laughs> you, you've got yeah, exactly. <laughs> at one point, you might actually want to, you know, use those for, you know, eating food or uh, you know, biting someone. Like, who knows? You know. <laughs> He was, he was, yeah, but he, he was heading towards pureed food permanently, put it that way. <laughs> but it's a great, but it's a great trick. It gets, gets people all worked up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so then talk to me about, uh, Psychos first start getting out, getting out into the world. You know, at this point you got, you got Robbie. First, first of all, what the hell does go the hack mean? Is, is that an Australian slang thing? Yeah, the hack is basically, it's an Australian saying, it's about having, I guess you'd say it in the States, it's going the whole, is it go the whole nine yards or go give it all, give it everything. Gotcha. Something like that. It's very, is that, that's what the going the whole nine yards is giving it all, isn't it? Is that what going the whole way or something like that? Yeah, that that sounds, that sounds like the right aphorism. I think they call those aphorisms, right? Yeah, something like that. I wouldn't want to spell it, but something like that. So yeah, go the hack. 
go to the hack is just yeah, giving it everything, just just without care, just going for it, just whatever. You just go to the hack. Uh, you know, in retrospect, kind of seems like a statement of intent to have that iconic album cover with you guys on the bulldozer. Was that something where you were trying to make a statement, or were you just like, ah, this will look cool? You know, like what was the, what was the mindset behind having that kind of album cover? It was definitely the latter. We said, what are we going to do for the album? And it's funny that that album, most of those songs I wrote during that tour of Europe that I didn't go on. I was actually going to start a uh, a band, another band called Back in Town. Oh, really? So, okay. and it was I'd, most of those songs I'd written for that, and then obviously it, it, the story just goes. Well, I just rejoined the band. I, you know, Al didn't was only there for the tour, and I'd have talked to Pete and Bill about it. And thought, oh yeah, well, we'll keep going. So, but yeah, but the album cover on Go the Hack was just I had a bulldozer. And it was like, well, what are we going to do for an album cover? Oh, we'll stand on the bulldozer. And that was about all the thought that went into it. <laughs> yeah, well, you're the bulldozer. Well, we're going to stand on it. What do you think we're going to do with this? <laughs> well, what else do you do with a bulldozer? <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> but it's, it's quite funny because I have answered similar questions about it was to represent the power of the, the bludgeoning music, blah, blah, blah. But I, and I'd like to think, yes, we sat down for three weeks and thought about standing on a bulldozer as some huge statement about the music. But no, it was just like, well, we've got nothing else to do. We'll stand on it. And that's as simple as that. When, when you're talking about for that record, uh, well, first of all, what was the recording process for, for that record like? What was it like getting those songs? Yeah, we went up to, oh, look, it was good. We actually went up and did that one in Sydney. So it, it, that meant getting into a car and driving nine hours, or at that stage probably it was about ten and a half hours to Sydney. We actually went into a, a studio and worked with um, Renee Roth, who was who was doing some great stuff with other Australian bands, and uh, it was good. It was it was a proper big studio. It was probably the more, you know, the biggest studio we'd worked in at the time, and. Um, Oh, we, I can't even remember how long it took us to do it, but we basically had the music down pretty quick. And there was just, I think actually the words for Go the Hack, I wrote the morning before we sang it. I didn't have any words for that one, so I just sat down. We were staying upstairs in this old pub, and I just sat down and wrote the words for Go the Hack because we were just, we we're getting short of lyrics, so we had to quickly just jot something down. So the process usually we stumbled and bumped through. <laughs> I mean, do you think you would have, like, put a little more pressure on yourself if you would have realized what of an influential record it was? Or was this something that didn't even enter into the equation? Well, again, it's like falling off the stick, mate. We didn't plan that record to be influential or, or, or make a statement. We just wanted to make a record. The other reason I wanted to make a record was get more free beer. And it's as simple as that. It's a, it's a free beer delivery system. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, it's, mate, it's worked for nearly 40 years. <laughs> So some folks have said that like what the psychos did was basically to like that certain era of post-punk kind of like to what Slade was uh, or, or the sweet to glam and ACDC to hard rock. Did you find when that record came out that, Hey, there's, there's these other bands that we got kind of got a, you know, we're keen on what they do. They're keen on what we do. Uh, you know, there's even, even if musically it isn't something where you're exactly the same, you know, you find that you have common cause with these other bands. Did you start finding that was the case around then? Very much so, and especially when we hit the States for the first time. We just met so many good bands, playing with bands. And, and so Europe was a little bit unreal because you got stacks and stacks of beer, stacks of food, used to be a pretty good place to stay. When we first went to the States, and I think it was 1990, that's when we really started meeting a lot more bands. 
and a lot more people and, and just the, the state touring circuit being so much harder than Europe, um, as in no money, no food, not much beer, and if you got beer, it was warm. Um, but we met so many more bands and, and they liked us. And, and look, we were not quite the same as the other bands. They weren't quite the same as us, but every band we hooked up with seemed to be a really good mix. And again, we just seemed to get along with just about everyone we played with. Well, and that's, in, you know, that's important when you're, when you're playing as much as you are, you want to be having a good time. And part of having a good time is uh, be liking the people that you're around and, and the other bands that you're playing with. Uh, so did you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's fine. So so did you... Between uh, Go the Hack and the Blokes You Can Trust record, it seemed like there was a lot of stuff that you guys were doing. It seemed like you were, you were, you were being pretty busy... Uh, you're doing a, a lot of different things, uh, hitting the road, playing a lot of shows, things along those lines. Did anything sort of strike you as especially noteworthy uh, during that time, or do you have any like nice, you know, funny stories f- from around then? Oh, look, it, it, things were starting to happen there a little bit, just just from just from meeting the different people, and and then the the festival scene was just starting up in Australia, like the, the big day out festivals. So it just gave an opportunity. For, for people to play in front of bigger audiences, having all that kind of stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the whole, the whole Nirvana thing went through the roof and then bands were just getting signed up left, right and centre. Like we were sort of never quite, well, we just weren't good enough or good-looking enough to get involved in <laughs> any of the big signs. But it was, it was interesting watching Friends go that way and do bloody well. I mean, you know, it's the, the proof's in the pudding. Um, unfortunately, some friends got burnt by it, but it was great to see some people go with it. It was it was heartbreaking to see it, it, it break people and break bands. Yeah. Um, but it was it was it was an incredible incredible couple of years to just observe what was going on. Yeah, and no doubt, and and firsthand. If I now, if I remember correctly, uh, the Blows You Can Trust record that was uh, Butch Fig did that one, right? He certainly did. We're a big fan of Butch Fig's music. A lot of the bands we liked, he had worked with, and 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 Bill, the drummer, just wrote him a letter, and he replied and goes, "Yeah, all right." And that was just after we were very lucky because we, he had just finished working with Nevermind with Nirvana, so we. He gave us a little nice. sneaky, a, a sneaky little listen to what was what had been going on, and we'd also had a, um, we'd also had a, a, a little cassette given to us by, by a certain I can't name him in case he gets into trouble, but it could have <laughs> been he could have been called Dan Peters. <laughs> so, <laughs> Probably sounded very much like Dan Peters. Yeah, <laughs> very common name though. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a very common name for drummers in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Dan had, Dan had given us a little cassette of, of some demos that he had done with Nevada because I think he was filling in the drums there for it. Did a couple of shows and was just rehearsing with them for a little while in between before oh, before Dave before joined. Uh, Dave joined up. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was great. We knew it was coming. We sort of knew because we were like at the time Bleach. Bleach was a, we used Bleach for we discovered Nevada and the first trip we went to America met sort of met him and and through mud honey and everything just through that seattle scene so we'd been actually playing the cassette of bleach as a, a psycho's warm-up cassette for 
oh, God, we probably played that for two years before every gig. We just liked it. And, and no one in Australia had heard it then, and people were just coming up to us going, oh, who the hell is that? And we were just <laughs> right. sort of basically saying, you just wait. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and so you hear you hear that record. Well, allegedly, you allegedly heard the record while you were uh, making books you can trust. Now there's there's yeah. You have to understand. I do this. I'm I'm from Oakland, California, but I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I've heard some. I heard some stories about recording that record. There was a bit of a there's a bit of drinking that might have involved uh, the Crystal Corner, which is still around. I might add. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> some somewhat legendary night, if, uh, if if I remember correctly. Now, was that just like an average Tuesday for the Psychos, or was that something where you guys were doing it up because, you know, you were making this record when there's this feeding frenzy of weirdness where, like, the you know, the weirdos are allowed it in for a minute? Uh, we just, look, we just hit town. We just walked into the studios, met all the guys, met Doug and, and Butch, and oh, I can't remember the other bloke's name. It so, uh, defeats me. Uh, we met them and then, look, could, they couldn't have been friendlier, couldn't have been nicer. Um, we all just decided to go out for a drink that night. And then it was it was their mistake that they brought out a couple of bottles of Jägermeister late at night. So Dangerous, dangerous uh, alcohol. Because yeah. <laughs> it tastes oh, like candy, yeah. well, but then you don't even realise how messed up you're getting. <laughs> Especially, especially after, especially after a good eight or nine hour session at the bar. So, but I ended up sleeping. I got lost and slept in a shop front, but I somehow made it back to the hotel at some stage in the night where we were staying. We were, we were probably camping about two or three mile up the road of the highway. But uh, yeah, when we got to um, when we got back to the studio the next day, we were look, we were pretty well buggered, but we turned up on time. But. Um, Steve and Doug, who were supposed to be engineering the record, they didn't show up. And then Butch was there, and Butch was only going to mix it. But we, as I said, like I said on the docker, we drank ourselves into a very good position because <laughs> basically Butch started engineering the record, and he stayed with us. God bless him. <laughs> well, everyone else was uh, too too hungover to be of use. Then I guess he would have to, huh? <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, they, they, they sheepishly walked in that evening and we were already going. But, look, I'll I, I never forget hitting me bass. We had the bass set up down in the basement. I've got this old fuzzwar pedal. And the moment I hit the bass, Butch ran down to the basement and was just standing there going, bloody hell. It was because it just sounded like, a, like a, an out-of-tune semi-trailer or a crook bulldozer. <laughs> but um, he was wrapped with it. And we just, we just ran with it and... and as I said, couldn't be better. We even took a day off recording to go and do a film clip down in down in Milwaukee. Oh yeah, of course. So we, that, yeah, yeah, that was and um, uh, I oh I can't remember the song that that, that was for off the top of my head, but uh, no, we just record, had a song called Dead Brew, and then Butch introduced us to a guy who had a production company. Came into the studio and he said we should do a film clip with these guys. So we just went. Butch just goes, well, we're, we're doing well on recording here. Uh, so he goes, well, we'll go down to Milwaukee for the day, drink a few beers and do a film clip. So we did. Let's put, let's be clear about it. It's not uncommon behavior for uh, for Wisconsin to, <laughs> to, have, to have debauchery associated with such things. It's, a, it's pretty much a resting, resting state out here. Uh, yeah, so that was the uh, – and the other one – what was the other – and the other – so Dead Rue was the first single, and then the other one was what, Back at, back at School, right, which was um, – yeah. 
back at school. Up, I can't remember all the tracks on that now. It was funny, you know, the night before, that was, we had a record company in Australia called Survival Records, a very small record company, mind you, another one we never got any money out of. <laughs> but um, they were putting up a few, yeah, they were helping pay for the flights over there or, or they were chipping in for the recording costs, something like that. But I did get a phone call from the guy, a nervous phone call the day before we flew out to record that um, album and he said, oh, how many songs have you got? And I go, oh, I've got a few. And he said, oh, you're probably best going over there with about 20 to 25 songs and pick 10 of the best. Jesus. Well, <laughs> after I talking to him, I realised that I had three songs. So the night before we actually flew out, I, I wrote a fair few of the, <laughs> the rest of the tracks that were on that. In fact, just the riffs, basically, and we uh, probably worked on the work on the vocals when Butch said it was time to do vocals. So we just basically had to say, give us five minutes, mate, I'll go and do the vocals. <laughs> it seemed to work out okay, though. I mean, it seemed, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a, why, uh, why, why mess with the formula yeah. at that point, right? <laughs> exactly, tripping over the stick. <laughs> There's certainly, I mean, I don't think anyone would, would ever accuse the psychos of overthinking things uh, with, with that. Oh, no, no, no. If, if you overthink, it's, yeah, it's no good. If you overthink things or try and pre-plan, there were some stages after that album when when there was still some band signing, there were suggestions made that I should co-write with some good songwriters. Um, we should maybe go on a slightly different direction and maybe not swear and maybe, I don't know how you fixed up our good looks because, I mean, fair and we all look like we had truck accidents, so... We were not a marketable band. <laughs> Did you have the mullet at that point, or was it still pre-mullet? Oh, mate, I had the mu- I had no. I had the mullet going since I was as long as I, I can remember from high school, right through to the day when the uh, nature took the hair right off the top of my head and make it made it grow out of my ears. <laughs> I will say it does seem to me it does seem like there was a mullet dispensation for those from Australia. I'm not, I'm not entirely certain what the bylaws are, but it seems like there it's 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 considered okay. It's like oh they're from Australia. Okay, we'll allow this. <laughs> yeah, well the whole thing the whole reason about a mullet is in the winter it keeps your neck warm, and in the summer it stops you getting a sunburnt neck. So it's quite practical. It's a pragmatic concern when you're working on the farm. Exactly. So it's not a hairstyle, it's a necessity. It's not, it's not a hairstyle, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I didn't want to, uh, I, I'm kind of jumping around here and, uh, and I want to apologize a little bit for that, but I wanted to talk about when we were talking about Go the Hack, uh, Lost Cause. Now, you knew L7. You befriended L seven, uh, yeah, and the I mean, I think you even did a split a split with them, if if I remember correctly. Uh, th- this there's a very funny story um, about uh, "Fuel My Fire," the L seven song. There was sort of like an accidental lift, yeah. to my understanding, right? Yeah, that's correct. It was, um, yeah, and as you said just then, we, we were great mates with L seven. We. Their first EP we heard and we absolutely loved, absolutely loved, and we that that was on high rotation in our tour van all the it's a time. Ripper. Yeah, and uh, oh, 
classic, absolute classic. And look, we used to send messages via band room walls, and you know, we sort of knew each other before we actually met. And then when we finally did, we finally did meet, and we, of course, we, there was we were only ever going to get on with them really, really well, really, really well. And and look, we played gigs with them. Uh, we toured with them. We had a lot of fun. As I said, we were just the, the brothers and sisters that, that, that we never had. They were just, we were just, you know, just great. And we still are really good mates. It's all the most respect for those those guys and anything. And, and just the fun we had. But then, yeah, the story about the fuel my fire is I'm, I'm lying in bed one night. The phone went at God knows what time. It might have been two or three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, a bit of a time. And it was difference. Danita. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a t- and Janita, so she'd had a few drinks and she's, she's saying that they've, they've, they've got this song that they've recorded and they suddenly realised there was a, a liking to, uh, yeah, there was a bit of a bridge in there that was um, the same as or similar to Lost Cause. And I went, oh, yeah, whatever. But, I mean, she tried playing it to me on the phone. I couldn't really hear it. But yeah. I said, yeah, whatever, and I didn't care. <laughs> Transatlantic phone call positive. and, like, playing music over it, it's probably not going to be the highest fidelity, right? <laughs> No, it's never going to work. But, look, if anything, I was absolutely wrapped that, you know, she said I'll give you credits for it. No, look, I was stoked that that they wrote a song that sounded like it. I didn't give a – it was good on them. I didn't care. You know, it was great. You know, they, they, they were a better band than us, so I was pretty stoked. So – but that's also the song that uh, that Prodigy band – uh, pick, picked up. On oh, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that, that first of all, that happened. So we'll we'll start there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fair to say most of the fans of this show, as well as the fans of the Psychos, are probably not Prodigy people. But uh, that was a very popular band. Yeah. Uh, look, they were a popular band, and they were a bloody good band for what they did too. I I didn't mind some of their stuff. It was right out there. That that had a, that mix of dance and and sort of punk and and like you know it was aggressive. I, I'm yeah. not a I'm not a Aggressive, which anyone that has a yeah, they went the hack of what they did. That's probably the best way of describing that. Yeah, that's that's a little more diplomatic way to do it. (laughs) Yeah, and the um, but the word got out the prodigy were going to cover L Seven song, and then people in the industry just going, "You you blokes are going to be filthy rich." And I'm going, I just kept saying, "Look, I think you've got wrong here." Because what they didn't realise, you know, at that time the band was, we were dividing all our royalties up three ways and then it was divided again through L7 and then it was blah, blah, blah. So so the percentages that, that we were getting were minute. But but having said that, we probably got a bit of money out. I don't exactly know how much, but like a couple of grand. But I opened up a, a big newspaper here in Victoria, it's, well, it's Australia's biggest selling newspaper in Melbourne. And on page three, there's Bill Walsh holding Go the Hack, <laughs> saying, here's, here's the overnight, newest overnight millionaire. And it was just, <laughs> I was that serious. Because he was making he was making a story out of nothing. <laughs> well, nothing. yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, do you think that was as much to do with. You know, when it, when a paper doesn't have those kinds of stories to tell, it can be exciting to sort of do a little myth making, oh. <laughs> and especially oh. if the subject's yeah, into just, it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, well, 
that, that, that explains Billy's personality. Like, if, if you give him a sniff, like, like I'm sure if you sat down and interviewed Bill Walsh, you'd probably find out that he influenced most of the bands from 1955 right through to the present day. <laughs> I didn't, really, probably, didn't realize he was so influential, yeah. <laughs> oh, geez, I'll tell you, ask Iggy Pop about Bill Walsh. He'll, he owes him everything. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I mean, that said, it, it is kind of just an interesting, uh, you know, what do they call it? butterfly effect kind of situation that it happened to be that song that, uh, you know, that Danita inadvertently like homaged uh, and then like the songwriting credit and then like this, you know, she was, a, it's weird to think about now, but I mean, that was a household name band. Like even the fella, uh, the lead singer guy that was sort of like, you know, the... <laughs> The, I can't remember his name, but he was trying to be like the electronica Johnny Rotten, right? Uh, that yeah, that, yeah. Everybody knew like what that yeah, dude looked that like, was... <laughs> you know, for a while. Oh, shit, yeah. oh hell yeah! And and it was it, look, you look back at the story now. It is, it's hilarious. It, it, it's just, but the thing is, I think at that stage we were known as the band that knew famous people, but we did fuck all ourselves. And I reckon that was kind of a weird situation to be in. <laughs> I mean, we've got, we've got the prodigy covering a song that we had a slightly something to do with. We'd been, um, we toured with Pearl Jam on their first Australian tour. So we, we, we played in front of 45,000 people outdoors in Sydney and there was 45,000 people plus the security guards booing us. But the security it was, guards. It was, <laughs> wow! And, uh, mate, I walked past. I walked past the photographers' dugout. You know, underneath the stage, there was all these little rooms, and there was all these photographers. Like I knew some of them just through. I knew who they were, but international and Australian photographers, and they were having this big conversation on why the hell would Pearl Jam pick the psychos to support? They were like, there was this loud debate, and I walked past with a beer in my hand and they all looked up and went and they all put their heads down and pretended they were doing something with their cameras but it was fucking hilarious <laughs> they're, they're talking trash and then suddenly they got, they got a like a, a junior jumble to finish or something along those lines right <laughs> oh definitely definitely but I mean it was great I mean those the, the, the Pearl Jam guys Ed is, is a very good friend of mine he's a great bloke and those blokes they are all champion blokes and their crew are champion blokes and they're good people they're good people I don't care if people like them or not but they're good people that that definitely is something that comes across from anyone that knows them or works with them or has anything to do with them of just like top to bottom the first thing that's said is like oh they're they're like the best people ever which I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's better to have like yeah. better to have like a good good person, I think, you know, than uh, than I mean, you could have like the best band in the world but if they're a bunch of of pricks. I mean, hey. Yep. <laughs> Music better be good. Yep. Not, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, they're good. They're great. But as I said, at that stage we were we were we were more famous for the people we knew, you know, Nirvana, Madani, Pearl Jam, all of a sudden we we're, we're songwriting with the Prodigy. What? <laughs> sitting down in a chair with, with the prodigy blokes? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, the, the, you guys are you guys are doing your thing. It's uh, it's something where, <clears throat> to a certain degree, there, there's a certain type of uh, almost like 
quintessential type of, of punk rock that, uh, you know, it's not like pub rock is the wrong word, but it's, it comes from a very working class place. It doesn't seem like things change that much. Like maybe like the, the music got a little more, you know, slightly more uh, astute with the songwriting. But it didn't really change with what the psychos were at the core of it. Was there ever a thought to kind of go for the gold ring? Were you kind of ever like, ah, well, what would we do here that would would cash in on this like brief moment in time where the weirdos are be- seeming to be let in? Yeah, look, there was as I said, there were some suggestions from the management. We had some very good management in the nineties, Australian management. And they were good, and there were some just suggestions with them if we get a few things different or if we maybe relocated to America, we might be able to jump on the coattails of that of that money train that seemed to be going around and signing bands for deals and stuff. But there was no way I was going anywhere and there was no way I wanted to change what we were doing or have anyone have too much influence on what we were doing. Yeah, and it's something where, I mean, the, the worst stories are almost people that do change who they are and they change like what the band is to to try to get that greater level of success and then they don't do it <laughs> they, they, they doesn't hit and they just you know kind of uh yeah. killed what made them good in the first place well, for nothing exactly and look my theory being now i'm not a muso so i can't whatever i say about music has got no legs whatsoever but my theory forever mm. has been when you find some spot you, if you look at rock and roll as a clock so if you find a spot on that clock where you're happy jumping up and down, doing your own thing, don't chase that hand around because you'll get exhausted and you'll never keep up with it. If you stand in the one spot long enough, that hand will come back and sort of every 10 years the psychos seem to get another little spurt because we've stood there doing nothing <laughs> and we're waiting for that hand to come back. Up. Yeah, it's almost it's like you quite can... a simple thing. Yeah, you can like watch like the trends sort of come and go, and then be like, "Oh, well, here comes this one again," and uh, oh, that's it's this now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, you, and you watch people fall off that clock, and they're exhausted. They die, they fall off, they get pushed off. But if you stand your ground, it's always going to come back. You know, it's a very basic theory, but it works. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it certainly uh, seems to be a key to longevity, uh, if, you know, for for sure. And if you're enjoying what you're doing, then that that's uh, that's a lovely thing indeed. Uh, t- talk to me about uh, the Melvins. When did when did you first meet up with the Melvins? And <clears throat> near and dear to my heart. Oh well, but being fans of the Melvins, look, we I first discovered the Melvins when I first met um, Matt Lucan ah, through Mudoney yeah. and. And I, 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 he introduced me to being an old Melvin's head. He used to be, and he, I, I, through him and through his back history, I discovered the Melvins. So um, I was a big fan of everything and anything they did. And then actually playing gigs with the Melvins, it just was, it always has been, I, like I, without sounding like a complete dork, but touring with the Melvins is just an experience to be savoured. It is to, to watch those blokes perform every night is just you just feel so lucky just so lucky they do what they do so well yeah and with such a such precision and it's and and those and those fellows are big fans of yours as well and it's it's funny because you know (laughs) buzz is 
so great, but he's also has very limited patience for uh, people who have like partying as an ethos. But it seems like as long as as you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're you're being professional or you know at least professional in the way that matters for delivering uh, the art and the music, like he's right on board with it. And he it's 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 interesting uh, that the Psychos and the Melvins wouldn't necessarily be the bands that I would think of would be paired together in a lot of ways. Yeah, we did a lot of touring with them and some of the best, our best times touring the States. You know, some of those Melbourne tours are fantastic because they ran a great, they ran a tight ship. They ran a really good show. Again, that's when Kev was in the band. I got along with Kev like a house on fire. But all of them, we just got along well with them. And there'd be nights there when, um, like, we'd be so drunk after the gig and Buzz would say, Buzz would be going, so how are you guys getting to the next town? And we're just going, well, we're just going to drive. And, and Buzz is going, look, I'll drive you. So hey, well, you know, he wants you so to get there. Buzz yeah. would drive. He wants us to get there. So Buzz would drive us more than once. Buzz had to drive us to the next town because we planned to stay at a hotel at the next place and be there for the next gig. But yeah, Buzz would be going, how are you going to get there? And we're like, well, I've only had a bottle of vodka each and about 50 beers. We'll be all right. And yeah, that's the kind of sweet art he was and he is yeah, I really what a and uh and, and to to observe that that drummer bloody hell yeah so did you had had you played uh with Kevin before that like with the with the cows and whatnot I know that you'd you'd yes you'd tour with the cows we yeah. did a yeah, we did a pretty big tour with the cows when we were on when we were on amphetamine reptile because um Hazel and I would yeah, set yeah, us yeah. up with tour so we, we hooked, hooked uh, yeah, we, uh, uh, that's how I got to know Kev really, really well from there. And, and when he joined the Melvins for quite a few years, it was sort of, it was great to see, catch up with him again, but, but great to see, see the other guys as well. Great to see um, Dale and, and Buzz. Yeah, Kevin, he's uh, doing really well right now too. Hepatitis is awesome. And, uh, you know, he's, he had a bit of a hard track for a while there, but he's, uh, He's doing very well now, and that's that's awesome to hear. Friend of the show. Yeah, yeah. The world, the world is a better place for Kevin Cow in it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it actually just reminded me of the uh, was so there was the it was one of those AMREP things that uh, everyone was playing. I think it was like a New York one, right? That um, there was a there was a there was a thing with helmet. Do you? Uh, is, is it, has a statute of limitations passed on this yet or not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's all fine. That was at the Ritz. So it was one of Hazelmeyer's big um, showcase shows. And, like, the who's who would be there. Like, it was – I remember what watching one day and then Iggy Pop would be looking from the side of the stage. And there was pretty – a lot of people there and it was all buzzing because I think Helmut had just signed a major record deal, but they were – coming to do a secret performance for this AMREP show as, you know, I guess helping Tom out and just making it, making the buzz of the show even bigger. Right. And hell, I'm a good band by the way, and that kind of stuff, but our band rooms were tiny. Like I'm talking Melvins, the Melvins and us, we shared like a broom closet together and there was six cans of warm beer. There was just no food or nothing, but there was this big room set aside for helmet. So, we decided we would have that room. Now, also, there was a frosted glass door as you walked into this big band room, and down through this frosted glass door was a passageway, a very thin passageway with another frosted glass door and a toilet at the end of it. 
So we put Helmet's band name on the first frosted glass door. So when Helmet <laughs> filed in, they went looked at us standing there with lampshades on our heads, drinking all their beer, uh, and then they all filed off down the passageway to the toilet and they wouldn't have realised what had happened till they all got down to the very end and there's just a dunny sitting. <laughs> it was quite funny watching them file in. It was quite funny watching them file out and we got booted out of that band room pretty quick afterwards. <laughs> I was say, what was the reaction to that? <laughs> Uh, look, it, it, it wasn't good, and then then there was a certain – now, we'll have to be careful of this. There was a certain amount of patched bikey members that were doing security outside mm. at this club. Now, I can't remember his first name. I don't think he's longer with us, but he, he was one of the guys in a band called Surgery. Now, he decided to do a rock and roll thing and, and have a piss out the window. Unfortunately, it landed on one of these security guys' head. So that that uh, what happened then was there seemed to be a hell of a lot of blokes in motorcycle clubs storming up stairs, wanting to just kill anyone yeah. and everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's just sort of like just give me a target, any target. Yeah, that's a that's a bad scene. Oh yeah, and if you if you had long, yeah, long hair and wearing a stinky sweaty t shirt, you were you had a basically had a bullseye on your head. <laughs> oh man, rough business. And we couldn't we couldn't. Um, yeah, we couldn't actually call on Hazelmeyer to help us out of trouble there because I think Hazelmeyer had just got kicked out for the fourth and final time out of his own showcase. <laughs> now, here's – okay, here's what's funny. I've had Hazelmeyer on twice and once recently, but I had no idea about that because I would, totally would have given him grief about it if I had known. <laughs> he'll remember it. He'll know it. I remember when we did our set. I was half, We're halfway through our set. And I felt this great big boot up my ass, and Hazelmeyer had staggered out. I don't know what he was drinking. It was goodness knows what. He'd staggered out onto stage and given me a, a boot up the ass and then fallen over. That's how he couldn't even stand up. <laughs> so he kept, he kept getting kicked out, and they, he just got thrown out completely. Oh, that's a, wow. Thrown throw out of your own showcase. That's a, that's rough business. <laughs> that's that's some partying right there. <laughs> Oh yeah, well, look. Something he had another showcase at CBGBs one time, and there was something very similar happening out the side as well. <laughs> Dang! <laughs> was that a, so? Was that one of the ones with, yeah, the, with the hammerhead on that one, or uh, was that the at the rich show? Yeah, yeah. Hammer, hammerhead, Boss Hoss. Um, who else was on that one? Choke Boar. Oh, yeah, I've got a poster somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't think of the others. But yeah, that was at Seabees, that one. Uh, yeah, but that was yeah. That's which is, which sort of is now a John Barbados outlet, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that. If you've been in New York <laughs> since, but you can't think of anything more unpunk rock. Uh, but yeah, they they kept like part of the state. Like it's really just it's bizarre, man. It, it's really weird. Like we went in oh. there. Uh, when we were just in New York, oh, like let's you know let's see what's what this looks like, you know, and it's it's. <sighs> Hey, do you want a three hundred dollar shirt? Uh, oh, here you go. It's over here. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it's it's Jesus Christ. And I think the worst thing about it is they're all really eager to talk about like the legacy of CBGBs and like they they know from rock and roll. But I'm like, yeah, but you're in this bougie store selling three hundred dollar buttoned up shirts. So like, unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, 
mean, whatever. You know, it's they're perfectly nice folks, but it's just like, ugh. This is so just indicative of, like, what is wrong with the world right now is that, you know, as much as it's easy, it's easy to fetishize or, uh, or lionize and memorialize something when you don't have to deal with the toilets. But, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> but a John Varvatos store? Come on, man. <sighs> yeah, that's, that's, that's running things for uh, that one. That one is. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I'm sorry, didn't mean to derail things there. But yeah, so, you know, spe- speaking of derailment, can you talk to me about, about powerlifting? Like, my understanding is that you're quite the uh, the champion powerlifter. And uh, what 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 gave you the wild hair for that? Well, when I, I I played competitive sport till I was about forty two, and I just I look I, basically sport running and sport for me and, and a bit of weightlifting and stuff. It, it helps me control my probably alcoholism. So, I, for whatever I put into my body. In goodness, I take out in badness, so I have to work on this balance. But then I started, I discovered powerlifting because I was reasonably naturally strong. Mm-hmm. And then I just found this sport that was only three, there's only three lifts, pretty basic, a perfect sport for a base player. So there's bench <laughs> press, there's squat, and there's deadlift. So there's no thinking. All you've got to do is work, have a very big grunt muscle, and if you've got a grunt muscle and no brains, you're going to go well in it. <laughs> it's like the E, E, E of sports then? <laughs> it is fantastic. And you've hit a nail right on the head there. It is perfect. So, yeah, I took it up and, and did all right in it for a while. And like, and it's funny because as I'm speaking to you now, I'm actually lying in bed with my leg up and I've, I've just had my second total hip replacement in the last four months. Whoa. So I kind of I wore myself out. Yeah, it's it's well, it's it's hell on the body for folks that do it, you know, with any degree of regularity. Uh, it's oh. there's usually an age limit <laughs> to when it's a good idea to 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 keep doing it, unless it's like literally all you do. Yeah, and, and look, doing a thesis on training and lifting tens of tons of weight every night of the week, and then trying to repair your your skeletal system with boxes of beer it doesn't work <laughs> i've proved it <laughs> the, the-, the theorem has been disproved <laughs> yeah I've, I've, I've done a thesis and it's a, the shortest thesis in the world and it just says it doesn't work Done. <laughs> so so did you find that that but did you find when you were doing that the folks in that world were like receptive and welcoming to you, I mean, I can't imagine there's many folks from a rock and roll background that uh, that, that take it up. Uh, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, look, a lot of people don't know that. Look, there was probably one guy. Probably there's only one guy that really gave it any. Like, actually asked questions about it because I didn't talk about it much. I'd just disappear, and you know, I lifted three times overseas internationally, and all my other lifting was in Australia, and I never made a song and dance about it. Yeah. I just, it was something I did three or four nights a week and then three or four times a year I'd, I'd compete. But the only bloke that ever took any interest in it was probably Ed Vetter. And that's only because Ed and I are sort of, we're bound by sport. We, we love doing stuff that's active. We, we go and hit a baseball or go and play tennis. We'll be doing some shit like that. So he was quite interested in 
what I was doing with the powerlifting. But basically all my other mates would just stare at me with a cigarette hanging out their mouth going, you're mad. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's the uh... – I feel like that's the quintessential Russian weightlifting thing is like, you know, li- like lifting weights with like the cigarette dangling like slightly off the lip, like Keith Richards mm. style or something, like almost falling off. <laughs> oh, well, see, I never, I never, I never chose to, to seek any sponsorship. So I always trained myself, paid my own way. So I remember when I was in Russia, I was still in the bar at two o'clock in the morning, the night before the competition. So I was sort of thinking, well, I'm here to have fun. I'll, if, if I let myself down, at least I haven't let anyone else down. But yeah, I was—I'd be in there just swigging away on vodka that was that probably used to run jetliners, and it was just. But anyway, I still did all right, so it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not going to slow you down. I mean, yeah, why would it? But nah. <laughs> I mean, did you find that those were? Did you find you had like common cause with those guys? Like, uh, did, did did you find them to be like you know agreeable, or was it sort of like, well, we're all here to to lift things and. You know, that's about oh, all we have Look, competitive. Yeah, look, I met a lot of blokes over there who, honestly, they were fantastic to, to lift with, um, very supportive. But it's funny, you know, that uh, as I said, pre-competition they were fantastic, but post-competition when everyone would go and have a few drinks and let their hair down, there was a lot of those people that I'd lifted with I, I would never have wanted to be friends with ever. <laughs> right. I just didn't get it. They were, they were just for me. They were just no good. They, they would never be me mate. They were, as I said, gave me all the support in the world. Um, but yeah, when, socially, oh geez, no way. I'll, yeah, take me back to the rock and roll crowd any day. Yeah, folks, where you almost are fine with being like single serving acquaintances rather than uh, long term ones. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say that in, in, not to be disrespectful of anyone. It was just, just it was just an observation I made as I watched. Well, maybe maybe they took it so seriously that they just didn't drink for six months before a competition, where I did completely the opposite. So maybe maybe it was them getting extra drunk, extra quick, and me just right. being drunk as usual. I, ironically, being lightweight at drinking, if not in weightlifting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so okay, and and well, thanks for talking about that because I just I think I think that's pretty interesting. And you're you're certainly not the only person I've talked to that has had like a, a leg in there. But the fact that you've actually competed and whatnot, I think, is is pretty fascinating because you just don't see that um, you don't see that level of crossover necessarily. Uh, back over to the hey, that was good fun. yeah. So back over to the psychos for a bit. Uh, there was kind of a pretty big stretch of time. Uh, where there weren't any records coming uh, from Cosmic Psychos. And that yeah. was, uh, what, like 90, 97 or, or so to 2006. There was kind of like a, a run where there just weren't any recordings happening. What what was happening around yeah. then? Yeah, well, see, around then, Bill the drummer, he had opened up his own nightclub bar. So he was pretty busy with that. So... Bill was enjoying the life of being Mr. Big. And, look, to his credit, it was a bloody good uh, rock and roll bar. It sure, was a ripper. Yeah. It had bands playing there. It had international bands going there for drinks after they'd played stadium shows. He'd modelled it on every rock and roll bar, mainly from you know, around the European, Spain, New York, wherever. He just modelled it on really good 
rock and roll bars and, and, and was the first of its kind in Melbourne. And it, it went really well, him and his partners. It went real well. So he was busy with that. And unfortunately, Robbie was, was battling a few demons of his own. So right. that was a hard time for him. He was, he was in and out of, out of some personal strife just with substances and, and stuff like that. And, yeah, it was just a quiet time. I mean, I did start playing with Dean and Kieran and formed a band called Dung. Dung right, yeah. And, and, that, and that, that, look, that satisfied my urge to play live. We were probably getting half a dozen beers a show and $200, but we'd go down to Melbourne, do the odd show. We'd play a couple shows locally and play in front of, 50 to 100 people, but it was kind of fun. So then at what point, you know, Bill's, Bill's busy. Bill's, Bill's doing, the, doing the bar. But at what point, two things going on at this point. You have Robbie's battles and you, and you got Bill's bar that's happening. So at what point do the psychos do you think yourself well is this is this it is this is this it for the psychos or it's funny well being a a naive farmer bass player i never took an interest in what the the band's business deals record deals money anything like that but in the downtime i don't know something happened there was something about i read something one day about an album selling tens of thousands of copies in Europe and, um, and money advances. There was something that didn't add up. So um, we were still playing the very odd show when we could. See, Robbie would have to hockey. We'd have to, he was hocking his guitar, so we'd have to get that out of hock. We'd still do the odd show, but not much. And then Bill had taken over management of the band, and I actually approached Bill. I had nothing else better to do, but I just backtracked a little bit and there was a lot of money I didn't know about which had gone elsewhere. And I always wondered how someone could, could finance such an elaborate project. Anyway, I approached Bill about it. Uh, he immediately just accused me. He said it was my fault because I should have kept an eye on it. And you know what? That was enough for me to go, wow. that'll do. That was a mistrust. Yeah, there was a mistrust. And I, I said, you've got three chances here. I said, you've been caught out, you can apologise and you can work it out or you're gone. And he refused to apologise. He didn't want to work anything out. Because Bill, Bill and I had been mates for a long time and Bill had he'd been, you know, Billy the drummer had been quite a driving force for that band as in motivation and to get us. Musically, his input was minimal. But motivation-wise and making things happen, Bill was an integral part of that band. Sure, right, but and from the beginning so his, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right from the beginning. So, you know, for him, and then he wanted to kick Robbie out. I wanted to support Robbie, and then Robbie got crook, and then John from the Onyas, who's in the band now, he he filled in a friend of ours. He filled in for a US tour with the Melvins once. He did some Australian gigs with us, and then Robbie was back. And Bill wanted Robbie out. I wanted to support, and it was just a, it was a, a it was. A shamozzle. It was just going nowhere. It was Robbie was getting hurt. John was getting hurt. I was already hurt, and and it was just, it just did nothing seemed right. Nothing seemed right. Yeah, and the fun had gone. Yeah, I was gonna say, and for a band, for a band where it's like almost like the focus is on fun, I can't imagine it being too fun of an environment. 
look, and it was it, it was shit house. And I, look, and then Robbie used to have his good times and his bad times. And then I I sat down for, with Robbie one day and I said, right, this is what's going on. And he found out what Bill had been saying about him and that kind of stuff. And I said to Robbie, this is here's the financial stuff. And we looked at each other and we just said, right, he's out. So we just we, we booted him. That was as simple as that. We just said, well, I don't care what we do from here, Rocket, but but he's he's out. And then you already were playing um, with Dean, Dean, so you knew you knew that you knew yeah. how to play with him. So yeah, so I got Dean asked Dean if he'd play, and he, he said he would. And then we did gigs, but they were small. We were just we had no management. Dean's uh, wife Kim was booking a few gigs here and there, but we had no publicist. There was no record deal. There was nothing. But you know what? It was kind of fun again, so it didn't matter. <laughs> so, it's almost like back to basics, right? <laughs> oh, if you could get us any more back to basics, we were back there, all right. <laughs> so the uh, and and then, then that's begat the um, the the record from uh, two thousand five, right? The uh, the one that's got Kill Bill on it's it. A glorious bastard! Oh, sorry, yeah, off your crew, it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. There we go. Sorry, it's it's the the, the title's too Australian for me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's it. Off, off, off your crew. It's another very old Australian saying. Now, I like the a, record. A I just I just can't yeah. tell you what the title is. So please, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But a cruet is something that sits on a table at a cafe that might have your Tabasco sauce, your salt and pepper. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Your Worcestershire sauce. Yeah, that's that's called a cruet. Now, I think where the term comes from would have been when the drunken father comes home and and pissed as a fart, like get really angry and aggressive, and being a mongrel, a mongrel punches the table or something like that, and and knocks the cruet. So he he was that pissed, he was that drunk, he was off his cruet. Off so you cruet. knock the cruet gotcha. over. Okay, yeah, yeah, off the cruet. So that's where that term came from. Just another old, almost forgotten Australian slang saying. Well, it's it's, it's almost nice to have have uh, those sayings immortalized as like a living history with the with these records, though, because it's especially uh, coming from someone that you know likes the music, but doesn't necessarily have like that same cultural shorthand uh, to be able to understand what the hell it's all about. But it's almost like you don't need to as well. Uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of good. I just it, It's good to have people scratching their head going, what the hell does that mean? It's kind of good <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> that sounds mysterious. So uh, Kill Bill, huh? That's the uh, first song on there. Yeah. Big yeah, Tarantino fan? Yeah, that was that. Uh, <laughs> oh, a huge Tarantino fan. I'm, he is a uh, yeah, big fan, huge, absolutely huge. They're solid movies. It's it's it seems like they're for American cable. It seems like one of them is always on. <laughs> I don't understand why. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I'm for it. <laughs> oh yeah, look and look. I, I I fall for it every time. If I don't watch much TV, but if I'm if I'm sort of if I happen to glance through the newspaper and see what's on the telly that night, and there's one of his films, and I just get sucked into it every time yeah. again. You know, it's just. It's just you just oh, look at you always pick up on something that you might have missed. There's another little quirk in there that he's put in there that I was looking at another quirk. I just just love the way that he, he puts stuff together. He's a 
a very methodical and detailed filmmaker. And, and uh, you know, I think it's one of those things where I'll argue both sides of it with Tarantino. You know what I mean? But I think overall, like, he might be a little underrated. I don't know. It's tough to say. Uh, yeah. So, switching from Tarantino to a much more serious topic, uh, of course, it, it's difficult to bring up, but, uh, we, you know, we've talked about Robbie's troubles. Uh, it was in 2006, right, that he that he finally passed away. Yeah, yeah he did. And it was a um, yeah, it was it was something that we look. We, we it was in the back of your mind that it was going to happen any day, but yeah. but it was also in the in your front of your mind that it was never ever going to happen because we we'd um, always hoped we'd get him through. Always hoped that we'd get him through somehow, and we did. We did our best. We, we respected his his wants as well and his decision making in life. But there was always the supportive arm out there if he wanted it. But yeah, unfortunately, it just didn't didn't go the way we thought it was going to go, and it just went the worst possible way. And yeah, miss him every minute of every day still. But that's uh, honestly, it's 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 a horrible thing to say. These beautiful kids family and everything but it's almost what he wanted <laughs> you can't argue with that yeah i mean it's 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 tough you know when, when someone has uh, something like that in their life and it's a uh, it, it defines everything yeah. around them you know yeah yeah and as i said just just one of the most beautiful souls you could ever meet he was just a, just a wonderful Wonderful human being, he really, really was. Great he had not an aggressive player, bone too. in his body. Great player, uh, manic, manic. I mean, as as we talked a bit earlier, his the shortness of his teeth let him down in later days. But apart from that, immaculate. Yeah. So when you so how when you play with someone for that long and and you're in a band for that long, yeah. At this point, you know, you it's not like. Dean's someone you don't know. You obviously you played with him in Dung already. Uh, you, you know the way he plays. Like, what? What's? Was there ever any doubt as to how to proceed? Yeah, look, there was. I was look. Dean and I were both heartbroken, and it was just. I just sort of went, you know what? Enough's enough. I I, I couldn't imagine going on, and then oh, a couple of weeks after. Robbie's death, I, I was actually talking to Narell, Robbie's partner, and I, I said, look, I don't think I can go on with this. And she said, oh, you probably should. You should. He'd, he'd want you to. He wouldn't want this to stop you. Yeah, and we're not talking about a juggernaut of the greatest band in the world here. We're not talking about a Freddie Mercury versus Queen here. <laughs> we're sort of this cosmic psychos we're talking about. But in our little world, we, yeah, I sort of, I just missed that. Because we were flying with Dean and Robbie in the band. The, the chemistry was great. Yeah. The fact that we were playing for $200 and bugger all beer, it didn't matter. It was just fun again. Um, but then I talked to Dean about it and look, and then sort of thinking about John joining the band because John John had filled in for us on a, on a US tour with no notice whatsoever. So the first time John ever played with the Psychos was at the Continental in New York City, 
we'd played with John's band, the Onyes, in Europe a couple of times and right. in Australia a few so times. You, so you know how we he plays because John- you've seen you've seen him play. So you so you, you know that you know <laughs> isn't it like yep. he's he's he would fit in musically. <laughs> Fit in musically and fit in as a good bloke. He was like straight up. He was one of the one of the nicest blokes you could ever You just knew him instantly. He's just a sweetheart, an absolute sweetheart. And, um, and like you know, the example is when he when he got off the plane and got to the Continental fifteen minutes before we were supposed to go on. I just said, "How many songs have you got, John?" He, he had a little practice sitting on his bed the night before he flew out because Robbie pulled the pin on that tour. He just didn't get on the plane. That's short notice. It was so. Bill and I are sitting in New York and we actually played a gig in Boston with Nashville Pussy and we didn't have a guitarist. So we had his guitar, we just didn't have a guitarist. So <laughs> by the time the second gig of the tour... Yeah, I find it works we better were, when you have a guitarist to go with the guitar, yeah. <laughs> well, it's pretty funny. The sound guy in Boston goes, where's your guitarist? And we said, we don't know, but we've got his guitar. And he goes, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, we're just going to turn it on and face it towards the amp. And he goes, he looked at us and he looked at the guitar and he said, he goes, mate, he goes, I'm a pretty good sound guy, but I don't think I'm that good. <laughs> uh, but but Ryder, God bless us all jumped up on stage. We were struggling with the feedback and everything, and we were just thinking, you know what, we've driven all the way up to Boston from New York City. We've got to do this gig because yeah. we really want the 50 bucks. <laughs> and then but Ryder got on. Got up. She got up and played. I think she did lost cause with us and might have done. And right at the end of the set, she jumped up and we, we sort of hacked out, roughed out a couple of songs, so it was a bit of a laugh. But yeah, And then the, the next night was in New York City, and you know, Nashville Pussy were going pretty good at that stage, so it was a fair crowd there. Yeah, yeah. And um, you could you could do worse as far as uh, like a a band with common cause to play with too. You know, like it's a good oh, it's a fun yeah. show. Oh shit, yeah. And then well, John, fresh off the plane, he's got his bag, and I said, "How many songs do you reckon you know?" And he goes, five. I go, "All right, we'll run with the five. And after we after we did the first one, he taps me on the shoulder. He goes. You better make that three. <laughs> so, Did you I figure think that out before or after the set? <laughs> well, no, that was after the first song, and I think he, he actually played the first five songs on the first song. He did the five riffs all in the first one. He'd run out of things to do. Does <laughs> he just turn to you and say, uh, free jazz? <laughs> Yeah, well, basically that's it. We did, but within about a within a few more nights, we, we'd stretch the set out to half an hour, and then I think the Melbournes were giving us about 35, 40 minutes, and we just look, we just fudged it, and it, and it just worked. And that's the kind of bloke, yeah, you know, that's the kind of bloke John was on that tour. And then when I, I, I actually spoke to John, I, I was at his, at his wedding up in Brisbane, yeah, and I it was his wedding day. I didn't want him to be to to bring up business, but I just said to him, I said, hey, mate, can you, don't, you're getting married today, we're sitting down at the table and blah, 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 and I said, mate, can you ever think about joining the band? Just just, just have a think about it in another couple of days. Anyway, he rang me in three or four days and he goes, yeah, right, oh, no worries. And that was it. Nice. Well, and and yeah. it, it seems like uh, good good fit as a player and good fit as a fella too, which is which is always important and sometimes underrated with with other bands. Uh, 
absolutely. Absolutely. So then you got, uh, so you start writing songs with him now and you know, he, he gets a little more time rather than like overnight to, <laughs> to learn the old ones, which is probably preferable. One would imagine. <laughs> uh, so- yeah, look, it, it is, we still don't rehearse. We like, we very rarely rehearse. We, when we get into a studio, our recording process is basically John will have a couple of riffs I'll have a few riffs and Dean also writes a couple of riffs and then usually John can never be there for the first day so Dean and I'll put the bass and drums down so Dean will go, how does the riff go? And I'll go, it goes like this. He'll listen to the main part and I go, oh, and here's the bit where it changes and then it just goes back to that bit, pretty basic formula. And Dean will go, right, no problem. And then we just basically say to whoever's recording it, well, press, press record now, and off we go. And that's it. Right. That's our preparation. So it's a real, real fly, fly by the seat of your pants, which is kind of exciting to do. And, you know, a lot of the stuff's unplanned, especially the finishes of the songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the music, the music kind of, uh, if, if for, for those listening, the music has that feel to it. Like it feels like kind of exciting, kind of uh, immediate because of that. It doesn't sound like, a, you know, hey, don't get me wrong. There's some people that really vibe on listening to Steely Dan records, but it's not it's not that kind of vibe at all. <laughs> you know, it's it's very much no, uh, it's immediate. Yeah, and it's driving driving down the freeway wearing a blindfold. It's quite exciting sometimes, <laughs> and it could end in disaster. <laughs> so, okay, then... You do the and speaking of Tarantino, the the glorious bastards, uh, the, the glorious bastards record. Um, yep. Do you feel like at this point too? The, the, I mean, there's there's all these. We talked about watching trends come and go, and you know, just quietly doing your thing. But there definitely is like a very firmly ensconced kind of new garage world, sort of as evidence and represented by like burger records and things along those lines do you find that you have common cause like with the with with those younger bands that they're coming from a similar sort of place yeah oh very much so very much so and it's 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 a it's a really look i I can really speak only for with any authority about what's happening in australia but the like the australian pub rock scene sort of pub punk rock scene whatever you want to call it is yeah. is um it's got a very familiar feel to it again from when i was in my 20s you know and, and a young bloke covered in pimples and 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 didn't have a care in the world and it's i, I kind of like it i like it a lot yeah it's almost like the psychos have been around around long enough for what you do to be kind of like in vogue <laughs> amongst a certain well, scene, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's right. And that's it brings back my theory about don't move. Don't move. Stay in the one spot. Yeah. You know, and it just comes around again, and, and it's great to get picked up. And then, you know, and most of the younger bands, they've done a lot better than what we ever did. But it's really nice. So some of them will take on tour with us in Australia to show them a what little knowledge we can show maybe about just being how respectful we can be on, on on tour and how you thank people at venues because you've got to come back there. You don't fuck them up. You thank people because you want to come back. And then these bands get big and then they take us on tour. So it's great. It works out fine. 
Yeah, and and you know some of them, some of them have kind of hit a chord, uh, so to speak, with with folks. And uh, you know, it, 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 again, like all things are new again. But they, for a while, <laughs> for a while there, it kind of seemed like everybody loved telling the uh, oh well, such and such is bringing back rock and roll, and it's like, well, rock and roll never really went anywhere, man. Like I don't know <laughs> what you were listening yeah. to. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I mean, all you got to do is look. You just have to look. It just, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know what it is. It, it's, it's, as you said, you, you nail them right on the head. It's always been there. It's just whatever gets written about or spoken about, I guess. And I think with this new internet machine thing, whatever it is, it, it sort of, it's easier to, for people to access too. Well, and it's also something where, Younger folks can immediately have access to records from all throughout all of time uh, without necessarily, you know, knowing the cool guy at the record store, right? Like, you know, like they can they can listen to Go the Hack and it's going to be as if they're listening to it in like eighty nine or ninety or something along those lines. Like they, they can have that experience immediately because it's right there. It's immediately available. Yeah, uh, and also for bands starting out now, the options of home recording and stuff like that it's incredible the quality i mean i'm still stuck in a time where i still like using tape but we don't use it anymore but i'd love to do another album just on reel to reel but um yeah just the the facilities available for someone for a couple of mates to get together and go hey let's make a band and let's buy some fucking thing you plug in your computer and you've got a computer you've got a recording studio whatever you do i don't know but it seems to be a lot more accessible to record stuff yeah. Uh, so, did you? Uh, in getting, I'm sorry. In getting back to the the glorious uh, Barstards record, that's the one that's got a nice day to go to the pub. And that, and I, I mentioned earlier that I just was, you know, not not studying up necessarily, but just kind of like looking at like more recent stuff. And what I was looking at was the uh, it was I, I, it's the all good in the wood footage from uh, yeah. 2015. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was pretty wild. And it's yeah, it's crazy. There's there's folks of all ages like jumping around, uh, you know, having a good time with the music. There's people jumping in and off mic. There's someone on top of one of the structures. Uh, you know, the guitar gets unplugged. Yeah. It gets plugged back in. Like it's. And what I love about it is is the the very first comment on YouTube. It says, "This is Australia in a three minute video," <laughs> which I think is so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of true. And not that I go looking for wisdom in the YouTube comments. Don't get me wrong, but I've, I've especially felt that to be uh, both poignant and and dead on. And what occurred to me is like, you know, this this is a show that's not from that long ago, but I mean, the vibe of what the psychos do is right there. Like, it almost seems like this is like the perfect uh, emblematic experience of, of what the psychos is everyone's like you know not thinking too hard about it having a great time you know rocking out it's it's there's beer being spilled this way being spilled that way being spilled the other way it's um it's consistent and there's something to be said for that oh, and it is and look at you, you you glance out into a crowd not that i look out there too much but to see the different ages of people it's it's incredible but but to also see look it's to look when we do a, a show now you look out in the crowd when we finish we do the big old rock and roll 
um, hold hands and do the you know the big Rolling Stones yeah, bow. We've been doing that yeah. as a piss. Yeah, and then but you look out there, and everyone's smiling. Everyone's smiling. So you know, fr- from security to the bar people to the punters, everyone's having a smile because they get it. It's it's something where you can just go and have fun, get beer spilled on you walk out the door with your ears ringing and you've just had a good night out. And that's as simple as that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's it, it, the, the psychos are an institution in that way. I mean, is that something where, you know, I, I know you're a dad, like does your, does your kid notice or care about that? I mean, what was, what's the, like, is that something? (laughs) Well, He's my thirteen-year-old's somewhat because my, my older bloke's non-verbal, so which is probably a good thing because he'd probably say, "Dad, you suck" <laughs> if he could speak. But, um, you got a break on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, my thirteen-year-old basically goes, "Dad, you suck." I mean, he's like, I love my my boys, I really do, and and uh, my thirteen-year-old, I'm very very close to. We have a wonderful father-son relationship, but. He's got a haircut which is very similar to some a member of Duran Duran in 1986. <laughs> so, gotcha. And he, he he begrudgingly that we've just finished recording a new album. We recorded on the farm as we've done for the last couple, and actually got him up there to do some backing vocals because we were just after his voice hasn't broken yet, so we just needed a slight. Here's the detail for the psychos. One of our sing along pub choruses. Needed a slightly higher tone in the in in the in sure. the mix, so I got my son up there to do some backing vocals, and he pretended to have a really really bad time, but I secretly enjoyed <laughs> he enjoyed it, and he's actually right. He's actually taken he's taken up the bass guitar, and to his his at, at his school, but to his his musical teacher's horror, he's coming home and he's going, Dad. He wants me to play it this way. And I go, mate, forget about them strings. Just use the E and the A. You don't need any others. <laughs> and I'm teaching him the easy way, the easy way. So, like, the frets on your guitar are called dots or they're called blanks. It's quite easy. When you look at a guitar fret, there's frets that have got dots on them. There's ones that haven't got dots. So when you write a song, you go finger, E string, first dot, finger, E string, third blank, whatever. And that's how you write music. That's how you play it. Anyway, he's finding that quite easy, but it's very frustrating for his teacher. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's almost like he's getting uh, <laughs> he's getting practical knowledge from you. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know what the teacher's idea is, but it's probably something more traditionally musical, which is uh, going to involve <laughs> wisdom beyond that. Let's put it that oh. way. <laughs> well, uh, and that, and that horrible T word, which is theory. I mean, who the what? It's music, not theory. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it, is it something where, like, and when you look at the audiences, right? Like, you know, you you do you find that folks are, you know, you have uh, folks from the older days that have like aged with you, but then you have. You have kids coming in too that are, are digging the, the immediacy of it. Like, does it ever like? Do you ever get like the spanning, the spanning of time sort of mindset of like, wow, like here's here's all these folks and all right, we're gonna sing this incredibly oh, vulgar oh, song oh, now. <laughs> yeah, 
the funny thing is it's everyone loves being a bit naughty because the psycho's lyrics are naughty on a purpose because you can get away the freedom of speech and um, we just love taking the you obviously know the band well enough that we will take the piss out of something if we can take the piss out of something oh, we sure. will and if yeah. it comes across and if if it comes across a little bit vulgar, a little bit naughty, a little bit, oh, you can't say that anymore, well, guess what? You can because we're actually having a go at that whole thing. So, and it's very funny to watch kids and older people like me, but I'm nearly 60, that should know better, singing along to these songs. And it's, look, there was a, there was a point, we did a gig a few years ago now, and there was a guy that brought his son along. And he goes, I brought my son along. And I'm going, oh, that's nice. He goes, I wanted my son. They were trying to bond. I think they were having a few troubles. And he's, he's about 15 or something. And he wanted his son to see what he used to look at and, and go and see when he was a kid, you know, make him look a bit cool or whatever. Mm-hmm. He goes, um, so it's his first, his first gig. And I said to his son, I turned to his son, I go, so what did you think? And he goes, it's shit. So about <laughs> half an hour later, I met another bloke, and this is this is a, this is the truth. Another bloke with his son there, and I said to this bloke, I said, oh, "Have you brought your son along as well?" I was just talking to a father and son half an hour ago. He goes, "No, nah, he brought me." I said, "Oh," and I looked at his son, and his son goes, "Yeah, I'm a psychos fan, and I want to bring me dad." And I said to the dad because he couldn't get in; he was underage. And I right. said to the dad, "Well, what, what did you think?" And the dad goes. Mate, you're shit. So we've had. <laughs> you get it on both sides. We've yeah. <laughs> got it from both sides. It was unreal. Well, you can't please everyone, right? <laughs> well, uh, well we, we, we got them together. That was the important part. The psychos, bringing father and sons together again. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it's better to evoke a strong reaction than to just be, you know, the 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 middling grey gruel that is so much music out there. I would much rather be, like, hated than be like, yeah, it was adequate. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, you've got to be, look, the honest reaction is the best reaction, and it doesn't matter how it comes out as long as it's honest. <sighs> for sure. Uh, Ross, hey, I, I want to thank you so much for spending so much time with me. I know we had a rough start with the, with the technical issues, but uh, this this has been a delight, man. This is... It's, it's been great, uh, been great talking to you. Uh, great going through all this stuff with you. Uh, what's what's coming up? You know, post pandemic <laughs> with the, with with the psychos and everything else. Like, would you have anything um, anything planned at this point? I mean, not that anyone can actually do anything right now. Now, well, we were supposed to be in the states this year, around about now, and that that's obviously didn't happen. We were going to go to Europe in September. We've just finished a new album. Um, and we're trying to work out ways of playing in pubs. See, in Australia now, there's still pubs are still shut, of course. Yeah. Uh, there, there's talk about maybe opening them up to maybe 50 or 100 people, maybe. But we haven't had – we've had everything under control at the moment, but winter coming on, almost ready for a second spike. But we'll wait and see. But we're trying to think of ways to – to play and I've, I've come up with an idea that it, I just want to get venues happening again because venues they, they have people they have they have jobs selling beer they have people We're running security and, yeah. and just, and so I, I proposed it hasn't gone many legs on it but I want to do a six set psycho day at a pub where we get a hundred people in every hour and a half and do a set for them and they go out the door 
and then another hundred come in and they go out the door and ah. everyone will have their space and all that stuff. And then the funny thing is, see how we're going to look after about setting up number four. It's going to be hilarious. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's so it's almost like you just rotate the audience then. Rotate the audience in. And yeah. Because that's – yeah, and the band can just stay there. So you can imagine how drunk we're going to be by the third <laughs> yeah, and fourth say, set, yeah. trying to get through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, the, we the first set might be the favoured one. Yeah, <laughs> maybe the second. Well, <laughs> it depends. Well, it depends. Maybe the last one might be the best because we'll probably finish up sitting on the edge of the stage with tambourines by then. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I think it's. it's I, I hope to see it, and that's certainly far more appealing sounding than uh, you know, a, a live stream concert with the you have to spill beer on your webcam or whatever. You know, <laughs> doesn't seem that. Uh, uh, no, no, we're, uh, we're live only. With the so we'll, we'll try and work something out. Maybe we can do a gig on the farm. Plenty of space on the farm. We'll work yeah, there something. You go. Social distancing will work out just fine on the farm. Uh, so. So, so Ross, again, thank you so much. Last thing, it's it's something I ask everyone I have on, uh, which is just uh, why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Is that it? That's why do you do what you do, yes. Oh, why do I do what I do? Because uh, I'm not smart enough to do anything else. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, uh, stay safe down there. And again, thanks so much. And uh, thanks for all the music, man. Uh, well, you stay safe. It was lovely to meet you. And when we do come over there, let's look each other up for a beer or two. I'm fully down for that. Let's make it happen. Good stuff, mate. You stay safe. All right, brother. Take care. Cheers. And there he goes. There he goes, Mr. Ross Knight. Transatlantic. Is this thing on? Photonic reversal. Done it again, folks. We've done it again. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Cosmic Psychos, you can find them. Uh, they got a Bandcamp, cosmicpsychos.bandcamp.com. Are we going? You can find their records. All the normal places that you find records. Yeah, the name of this show is Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal. Thank you so much for listening to it. The show airs on Radio Nope. As we come to the close of our broadcast day. Radionope.com. At bare minimum on Thursdays. 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, 6 p.m. Mountain, 5 Pacific. Signing off. Radioneutron.com for the archives. Mr. and Mrs. America, all the ships at sea. Patreon.com slash Reversal get you the episodes sooner. One dollar a month will get you there. Otherwise, no ads, no sponsors, no kidding. I've got 
50,000 watts of power. Ah! Ionize the air. Uh, thanks, folks, for spreading the word around for the show. It's always, uh, always appreciated. It's how people find out about it. This what else? Anything? Turn sound into electricity. No, I think that's it. Can you hear me now? Out on Stay safe. Dark and lonely. I got my radio on. Check you later. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio. The last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now?
isn't really broadcasting if there's no one there to receive. It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast day. See, I think we got a kangaroo on the phone line there for a minute. Yeah, I'll get the shotgun out and move him for you. <laughs>